Welcome to Make It Click, a podcast about training, enriching, and loving your canine best friend. I'm Liz Knight, certified professional dog trainer, here to share stories and info on all things dog. Building a training relationship and navigating life with your dog is an exciting time, but can quickly become overwhelming for many of us. I'm here to share dog knowledge, share stories, and break down info for you. I'm here to help make it click. Before we get into this episode, I want to first say a very happy Pride Month. As a queer human who's lucky enough to run my own queer-owned business, Pride Month feels extra special as a time to celebrate with the LGBTQ community. I also want to recognize that the reason we are able to proudly celebrate Pride is because of the work and sacrifices of those in the community who came before me, especially that of trans women of color, and for that I am eternally grateful. My guest for this week's episode is Ran Curant Morgan. Ran is a board-certified behavior analyst as well as a professional dog trainer. They co-run the Dog Behavior Institute based in Boston and are one of my go-to humans when I want to get nerdy about behavior or if I need another brain to work through a training idea. For this episode, Ran and I ended up chatting about the importance of choice, how we can incorporate choice with our dogs and with people, and about how the data we gather about our dogs influences the way we design training and life with them. Thanks to Ran for nerding out with me for this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it. Well, hi, Ran. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. It's delightful to get to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to see what we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Uh, So for everyone listening, would you like to introduce yourself, uh, share a little bit about you and maybe about some of the lovely furry creatures you have in your home? Sure. So my name is Ran Kurant Morgan. My pronouns are they, them. I am one half of the Dog Behavior Institute, which was officially founded almost a year ago. So we're coming up on our one year anniversary. I co-own and co-run the Dog Behavior Institute with my colleague, Dr. Stephanie Kesey Phelan. Um, And one funny story about us that I like to brag about is that we went to high school together. Um, Really? I didn't know that. That's so fun. I know. So we knew each other in high school, but our main connection is that she was and is one of my younger sister's very best friends. And so I was not allowed to be friends with my sister's friends. They were her friends. Classic sibling uh, friend relationship, (laughs) right? Exactly. So I've sort of known Stephanie for many years, but it was only... It was in 2011, um, so 11 years ago, that my sister sent us both an email and said, you two are both interested in dog stuff. You should talk. Um, And so we went out and had coffee at the Barnes & Noble in Burlington, Massachusetts, and talked about dog behavior things. and talked about a master's program that I had recently learned about in behavior analysis. Um, And so I told her about it. I was thinking of applying and we ended up both applying and we both started that September. And so we went through grad school together. So I have a master's in behavior analysis and I've also been working with dogs professionally like getting paid to work with dogs. I'm like, I've been working with dogs my whole life. Like I literally have memories of being saying to my teachers or my cousins or my neighbors, like, can I train your dog to do stuff? And I absolutely did. (laughs) Amazing what a kid with some milk bones can do. At this point, I would never be like, here, have some milk bones, go hang out with a dog. But that was where- Such was the life that we led in our youth. A number of people who were like, 
yes, 11-year-olds, here's some oh, milk bones. Yes. Go off. Have the fun. number of people that would be like, here's my dog on their leash. Go about. Yes. And that was just fine. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but Not the recommendation we would make nowadays. But <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yes. Anyway, it's sort of shocking for me to realize I started getting paid to work with dogs in 2000. It was either 2000 or 2001. I think it was 2001. Wow. And so it's actually been 21 years, which just <laughs> blows my mind. Um, and a lot of that was in veterinary medicine. Um, mm. So I, you know, as a kid, I was like, I could be a writer or a lawyer or a vet. I'm going to mm-hmm. be a vet. And Those so I worked three in the professions. Yes, Correct. that is the profession. That's how yes. you work with dogs is you be a veterinarian. Right. Um, and then one day, I weirdly remember years. One day in 2010, <laughs> I was on the phone at the vet where I worked. I worked at a cat hospital for a little while. And I was on the phone with someone who had to cancel her appointment because she couldn't get the cat in the carrier. And I must have spent like half an hour or 40 minutes on the phone with her which now I look back on it and I'm like, this was way outside my scope of competency. But I spent like 30 to 40 minutes talking through how to get her cat in the carrier in the future, like all the setup mm. that we could do. And I was like, this is what I'm passionate about. And the idea of doing spays and neuters every morning or like four to five days a week for the rest of my life sounded horribly boring to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is not to say, I mean, I think I really understand the same way I'm so excited about behavior. I imagine that veterinarians are so excited about surgeries, but I was just like, oh, yeah, that is mind numbingly boring to me. But for me, that is not my jam. But (laughs) I would love to chat with you about getting your cat into the carrier and having it be stress free for all of you. Um, And that's when I was like, oh, it's not veterinary medicine. It's it's behavior. And then I, I mean, I don't need to tell you my entire life story, but I, I was a trainer for a little while. You know, I interned in classes. I worked at a shelter. I had a lot of support. I started my own business and then I, I just really didn't like being a business owner. And so I, I've, I've sort of always kept some dog stuff on the side and dog training stuff on the side, but I went out and did a bunch of other things and had this little sort of side thing. And then last January, a little more than that, 2021, I was suddenly like, you know what? This is what I want to do all the time. And so I reached out to Stephanie, who was leaving her job, and I said, hey, do you want to start a business with me? And she, I, I don't remember what her response was in that moment. I don't remember if she was like, I'll think about it, or if she just like kindly sidestepped the whole question. But I sort of thought that I wasn't going to hear back from her. And then I got a text message in March. And I don't remember when I first asked her. So maybe this was the next day or maybe it was like three weeks later. But I got a text. Also, time isn't real. So Wait, what is time? Yes. Right. She was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, and so we launched it last July and it has been the best. That was probably a much longer answer than you were. No, like- I love it. I love hearing about what people's journeys were, especially because I think it's not uncommon for us to have a lot of us, you know, we sort of like knew we loved animals as kids and then didn't really know that there were multiple options of doing that as like an adult job. Um, (laughs) And so we did a lot of other stuff in the interim and then ended up sort of like coming back to realizing, oh, no, this is actually the thing that I want to be doing. Right. Which I just think is really cool. And it's legitimate. I mean, I think for a long time I really struggled. I mean, a long time, like, over the last two years, I've really struggled with like, I love dogs, 
but how do I change the world? Like the world is on fire. And I was working at Planned Parenthood for a while and supporting, I was working in parent education. So I was supporting parents and I was supporting young people and I was supporting teams who were working directly with people. And I was like, this is, you know, at least partially social justice work. This is important work. I'm changing people's lives. I'm advocating for lots of different people and for their mental health. And this is important. And is working with dogs like impacting people? And then at some point I was like, you know what? It's the thing that makes me happy and I get one life and it's the thing that fills my cup and this is what I'm going to do. And the more I do it, the more I'm like, oh, it is impacting people's lives. And there's so many ways. Like, I don't know that I would have made it through the pandemic without my dog. And, and that's one little thing. But I also see so many ways that we can support people by talking to them about their dogs or helping them have their dogs or helping their dogs stay with them or helping them feel less like everything that's going wrong is their fault. I see so much of that and it's just so often not their fault. And even when it's something that they've done, it's still not their fault. Right. Um, Right. And so I think people are feeling less alone in whatever they're going through with their dogs, especially during a global pandemic when isolation was already a feeling that a lot of us were experiencing. So having the, you know, this could be a whole other podcast episode too, but having, you know, like pandemic isolation feelings, plus feeling like you, something is happening with your dog that you don't understand and you feel alone in that. I think being able to be a support system for that is something that at least for me has felt very fulfilling. Um, And it, and it does feel like it, you know, it, it matters and it it is having an impact for sure. Yeah. And I also think that coming into creating the business at the time that we did and with these ideas also meant that we have been asking the question from the beginning about how do we make sure that our services and our programming are accessible and are inclusive. And we're, we're two white people in this business, like, racially we are not diverse right and so how do we how do we be inclusive and frankly not be tokenizing but you know yes. so yeah. that's something that we're we're constantly trying to keep front and center mm-hmm. and listen to people who say like hey you did this not quite right or you say you want to be inclusive but the way you have this online class doesn't quite work for me someone reached out and was like can you you know make this change to your online class Mm-hmm. And my, our initial thought was like, no, we had set this up in a certain way. And they wrote back again and said, I don't want to push you because like, I don't want to make a conflict, but you say that you want to be inclusive. And here's a way where this is a little bit less inclusive for me. Ooh. And we were like, whoa, that one, like, thank you so much. Like, how can we reinforce this? Because we right. we need to hear from people, but then we also need to make those changes based on what we hear from people. Right. Um, and because- because of how we set things up and because we named those values right from the beginning, we were like, absolutely, we are making this change. And also here's a, I forget what the discount was, but like, here's a discount. Like, thank you for your emotional labor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think, and I love that you, you know, referred to it as reinforcement too, because it's one of the things that my, uh, much less involved uh, experience in sort of the world of behavior analysis as compared to you. But it is one of the things that I think about a lot is that, you know, we think of dogs as needing something entirely separate from humans when it comes to learning. But all of those principles of reinforcement apply (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and it's something I think about a lot too, in terms of, okay, I want to provide this for the dogs that I work with, but how can I also provide that to the humans that I'm working with? Right. Yes. Oh, and that's something that I, I was trying to think of where this came up late, recently. Oh, it wasn't even about dogs, but I think it applies, which is I was just at a, a behavior analysis conference and I went to a presentation on mentorship. So going through a behavior analysis master's program in order to be eligible to sit for the board exams, you need to complete a certain number of supervised hours and they're supervised either weekly, biweekly or monthly. And then based on those hours, you can sit for the boards. And so there are mentors who supervise those hours and there are a bunch of different models in place. But I went to this panel about being a mentor and what that looks like. And we ended up talking about, someone said like, I want to create a situation where my mentees know how to say no. And I was thinking Mm. about how do we create the situation? How do we create the circumstances where someone's comfortable enough to say no And we can reinforce that. But for a lot of people, there's a huge power imbalance. Like a mentor-mentee relationship already has a power imbalance immediately. And then if you also introduce like different gender identities, different racial identities, different ethnic backgrounds, like Mm -hmm. there are so many other things that can compound that power. And so it might be a case where if we say as a mentor, hey, can you do this? You can say no if you want, but the other person doesn't feel comfortable saying no due to their own learning history mm-hmm. and the identities they hold or the identities they perceive from the mentor, right? Those may not even actually be identities that the mentor holds, but they might be read a certain way. That can decrease that, the likelihood of that behavior. And so I brought up that I try to find the smallest like the, the smallest approximation to a no that I can reinforce. Mm, so say mm-hmm. like, hey, can you email this to me tomorrow? And we see them hesitate. Can we be like, hey, you hesitated. That's okay. Email it to me next week. Or maybe we say, when do you think you could get this to me? And they say, oh, I think I could do it by Thursday. Then maybe we say, great. How about we set the deadline for Friday? like push it back so that we can show them flexibility. And I'm also, again, it sounds like mentoring. I mean, it sounds like this different thing, right? But I think this really applies to when we're working with our clients. Like I want my clients to be able to say no to me or to be able to say that won't work in this context, or I like what you're saying, but I don't understand how it fits in. Because if they're just saying yes, because they don't want me to have a bad reaction because they've met with other people who know more than they do, and they're not supposed to if that's what their learning history has been, that that's the reaction they're going to get. Right. Right. Then how are they going to be successful? You know, if I say mm-hmm. we're going to do like have your dog lie on a mat in this circumstance and they're like, I have 50 reasons that that won't work in this circumstance, but I'm just going to say yes. I'm yeah. not going to bring them up. That's not helpful for any of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It brings up, you know, I think a lot about for for me with my client relationships, the main thing that I want to have as the foundation of that is trust. And that trust is, it's sort of like three, it's a, it's a Venn diagram, you know, it's trust with me and the humans. It's trust with me and the dog. It's trust with the dog and their humans. Right. Yes. And then yes. that, that is the foundation where you then get to, if you, if we're able to find those moments to reinforce that, yes, I am actually, I'm actively listening to what you were saying and respecting that. And here is, you know, a follow-up messaging for me that says, yes, please give me that feedback, you know? Yes. Um, 
I find that so valuable. It makes me think, also, I should say for those listening, in typical Rand and I fashion, we had like five options for things we wanted to talk about today. <laughs> none of them are this. Um, none of them are this, but I love this. So I'm going to run with it. Um, and actually, I think this conversation can tie into one of the things we were thinking about too. So great. Um, but it makes me think about, there was a presentation at Clicker Expo, I think two years ago. Um, but again, time isn't real. So it could have been this year, um, that Kathy Sadeo did on muzzle training. I can't remember if you went to that one. And Kathy started the presentation by having the, uh, sort of like working teams. Um, she had them practice telling her no, and she gave them a specific signal to indicate that no was an option. And then every time they gave that, that signal in this practice session, that signal was respected and heard and, it, I, I loved that. And it, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before, but it, it's because, you know, it's something we think about with dogs. And this is where I'm hopefully going to come full circle to one of the <laughs> potential topics we had on our plate today. Um, but it's about choices, right? Of if we're going to give our dogs a choice, if we're going to give people a choice, we then have to be willing to recognize and respect that choice that was made. You know what? I so I remember that. I loved that muzzle class. We learned so much in there. Um and what was interesting, I can't remember how many working class groups there were. Maybe there were four. Is that I she say was four feels right. Yeah, yeah. She was asking them to do absurd things. And I don't remember yes. exactly what they are, but I'm gonna give an example. It was something like, Can you pick up your dog? And carry your dog over and put it on the couch. Like it was absurd, useless, but also sort of doable. Mm -hmm. And he started by saying, I'm going to ask you to do something and I want you to say no. Right. At least one person, and I want to say it was more than one person, was like that couch over there and reached for her dog. That wasn't exactly what happened, but it was something that really reminded me that saying no is such, it's a behavior that needs to have been established in the repertoire Yes. Um, because she had already given the instruction, say no to me. And the person, like that person wasn't wrong. They were responding within the context of the circumstance they were in. And I have also thought a lot about how, I mean, we could just talk about saying no. Like yeah, saying no it. is never, <laughs> ever a good thing. I used to do staff training and we talked about like, when is no a good thing? And Liz, I'm going to turn this to you. Can you think of a circumstance where someone saying no to you would indicate a a, a desired outcome? Oh, that's a good question. And I I feel like my answer has to be no. <laughs> well, I have some examples. Okay. So here are some times when hearing no might be a desired outcome. Okay. In response to the question, am I being fired? In response mm. to the question, are one. you breaking up with me? <laughs> in response to the question, am I dying? Like these are all situations in which no is like great examples. Desired right? outcome. <laughs> but think about how you're feeling in each of the circumstances where you're asking that question. Like if you're sitting there being like, Am I fired? Are you gonna break up with me? Am I dying? You're not having a great experience. Like right. you are not you having, are having, a, having good a good day. time. <laughs> it has not been comfortable up to here. Um and I just, I think a lot about saying no and like whether it's a skill we should teach. I, I've worked with families and kids for a long time. And in many cases, no is never an acceptable answer, even when declining a situation is. So if we said, mm. do you want a second helping? If there were a child who said no, 
they would be reprimanded for that. In most cases, they'd be like, it's no thank you or not right now or I'm full. Um, And where I'm going with this is just thinking that no is maybe even not a behavior we should try to strengthen, but what is it that we want? And I think what we want is for clients to tell us what what they want, um, Mm. what they need, or disagree with us. Like maybe we can reinforce asking questions or we can reinforce disagreeing with us or we can reinforce like clarifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love maybe when people no ask is clarifying not- questions. Yes. <laughs> it makes me so happy. And this also makes me think of, especially I, you know, thinking about the example of like, do you want a second helping? And if the no was going to be met with reprimand, it, I mean, you know, dogs are not children, but there are a lot of crossovers in, you know, learning, obviously. But it makes me think about things like, you know, if I if I see kids who are told, you know, do you want to hug this person goodbye? It's asked as a question, but it isn't actually a question with multiple answers when the only acceptable answer is going to be yes, right? Like, so it also makes me think about how can we reframe what we're even asking so that we're not setting up for we have in our brains that there's a I'll say in quotes a right and a wrong answer, <laughs> right? Um, and instead, you know, I, reframing differently so that we're saying, hey, this is not just a yes or no answer. Or if it is, I'm going to let you know that both of those options are in fact acceptable ones that will still yes. be provided with reinforcement in some way. Yes. Right? My gosh, I have been. I've just been thinking so much about choice and how do we incorporate choice into dog training? And I know this was on our list, right? (laughs) Exactly. I was like, this is all going to come. Yeah, we're going to get there. (laughs) Um, I have always, well, and I'm, I'm thinking about when I go for a walk with Beacon and I'm sure you've talked about this before, like Beacon chooses our route 80% of the time. Sometimes I'm like, that's just, we're not going down that dead end street into that ditch where it (laughs) says private, no trespassing. Like that's not the way that we're going. You have three other choices. We can go in these directions. We can go any other option. Um, And sometimes I'm like, let's go this way. And she just stops and she like looks at me. She just stops. And I mean, I think a lot of people would say she was stubborn and I love it. She's like, this is what I would like to do. And I really don't think of that. I think it would be easy to think of that as her being like, no, I'm not going that way. And I have really reframed it as a, like, this is the way she wants to go. She's telling me the way she wants to go simply by stopping and standing still until I start like, I probably look like a person who's, I don't know, got a lot going on. You know, my dog is standing there. My 75 pound dog is standing there on a leash on the sidewalk, sometimes right in the middle of the road, depending on where we are. Right, and I'm sort of happen sometimes. looking right at her and taking two steps to the left and being like, is this the way to go? And if it's not, or two steps to the right or two steps towards her and you can see her like, she doesn't roll her eyes at me because she's a dog. But if she could, I feel like she'd be like, what took you so long? Yes, this is the direction that we're going in. And then we chat along. But it takes so much t- potential tension out of our relationship for me to be like, she's just waiting for me to figure it out. She's right. not saying no. She's like, to you'll get I there eventually. <laughs> right. And I'm also like, what I want to do is take my dog for a walk to let her go where she wants to. And so there's there's not a conflict here. There's just like the silly human trying to catch up with what the right. dog wants. Right. 
But yeah, I love that, that you're not saying no, you're saying, you know, okay, she's saying no to something. How can we figure out what the yes is going to be? Well, yeah. And I would flip that. Like, I don't even think of it as her saying no. It's like Mm. her saying, I want to do something else and waiting for me to figure out how to understand her adorable little intention. Her adorable little intention. I love that. (laughs) Along the topic of choice. Allie Such of Up to Snuff recently posted a beautiful reel. Can I just talk about this for a minute? Oh, please I'm do. I'll, talk I'm going to link okay. it in the show notes because I Great. know exactly which one you're talking about. Right? Because it was amazing. Yeah. And one of the things that she posted is give your dog a snuffle mat, like put a snuffle mat out with the same food, which is one of the things I have not tried. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that I, when I'm working directly with a client, like doing day training, sorry, working directly with a dog doing day training, I have choice built in. Like we can work on what what I'm presenting. Like if we're working on leash skills, we can stand over here and work on the leash skills and I have a start button behavior and I have a chain of behaviors so that the dog's opting in. Or if he goes to his bed, the same reinforcer is available there. Or if he goes to his crate, the same reinforcer is available there. I don't have food out. Like there's not just food that but he there can There are multiple and eat. options for receiving reinforcement yes, in some way, right? And exactly. I think that's a, you, you know, for in our trainer brains, at least for me, a lot of time, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about choice is how can I provide as many different options for reinforcement to become available at varying levels of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like effort, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. And varying types of reinforcement too, like food, play, distance, whatever, you know, yes. whatever that might be. Right. And now that you say that, I'm also like, his toys are out. He could go over and start Ooh, chewing mm-hmm. on a toy. His mom is available in the other room. He could walk down the hallway and he could also just lie down at any point and stop interacting, which sometimes he does. And then I'm like, okay, maybe we're done with this exercise. Is he interested in something else? <laughs> yeah. Or is he all done? In which case we can also, I can go talk to mom about what we did today. Um, right. So I suddenly realized the other day that I don't do this when I'm training Beacon. I'm like, I don't know. Ooh. She wants to do something. Let's Let's do the recorder. I'm pulling out the recorder. This is what we're doing. And I and Beacon does have a, a very strong repertoire of opting out when she's done. Like she'll just wander away. And when she's done, I then toss a handful of treats on the ground, clean up and leave. So there is reinforcement beyond just her leaving. Like she's not fully losing access. But I don't typically also provide reinforcement for going to her bed or for engaging in a different behavior. If she starts offering other things, I'll be like, oh, you don't want to do the recorder. You want to do a chin rest or you want to do our like head nod sup. (laughs) Like I'll reinforce that and we can change what we're doing. So the other day after seeing Allie's post where she was like, have a snuffle mat out. I was like, great. I grabbed Beacon snuffle mat. I scattered a small handful of treats in it. And I went and sat down on the floor with whatever training props I needed for training Beacon did not even glance at me. Beacon was like, there's my snuffle mat. She went over. She ate every single thing. Took her like three minutes. And then she rushed over to me and was like, okay, I'm ready for training now. Right. She's like, was that like, was the preliminary training snack. <laughs> I was like, this isn't how it's supposed to work according to Instagram. And this is also like the lesson in like blindly following what people post without and and I love Ali's post. Like again, this is not a criticism in any way, but I was like, oh, put out follow the rules, put out a snuffle mat. Now she'll train with me instead of going to the snuffle mat. She was like, No, I 
go to the supplement. Um, and so I was thinking about like, why is this effective for other people? Because people say it is, and I believe them. And I realized that most of the time when I put out Beacon Snuffle Mat, it's mealtime. And I pull it out of the drawer and I walk over and I put it in that spot and I put the food on it and then she eats it right away. And if she doesn't eat it right away, the cat's coming to eat it. Like there is, as as we would say, nerdy behavior analysts would say, <laughs> the presence of the mat with the food on it has stimulus control over her eating. It does not indicate choice. The presence of the mat means eat right now or you don't get what you need. And so I have been thinking about if I wanted to teach that there are alternatives available. And I actually just got a different snuffle mat in a different color for this purpose. Mm. I can put the snuffle mat in a different place and I would teach a specific behavior. Like if she goes over and looks at it, or maybe she goes over and stands on it, or maybe she goes over and touches it, then I would put food in the snuffle mat contingent on that other simple behavior. So the same reinforcer is still available for engaging in a different behavior, but just putting the snuffle mat out with food actually created the opposite effect. And I really don't think that this was a situation where Beacon was like, I'd rather not be training. I think it was a situation where right. it was, she has this learning history where it was signaled that food is available and you eat it now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny that you say that because now that I'm thinking about it, I would guess that my dog Molly would probably have the exact same reaction because historically the sequence of events and the environmental setup of picking up snuffle mat, putting food in it, putting snuffle mat in location has been the predictor for, oh, this is mealtime when all of my food is going to be here. And then I stand here and eat it and everyone leaves me alone and this is my thing, right? So it, you know, it would make sense that that would be the activity she would choose. Right, And it, right. it doesn't necessarily equate to her saying, you know, F you, I don't want to do your training. <laughs> it's just, exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> now, the other thing is I recently started um, working on, like, I recently started working on a different component of toothbrushing. I've posted before that I've worked on Beacon opening her mouth voluntarily because if the bears at the zoo can do it, my dog then can I, learn to yes, do it. Yes, exactly. So I'm like, General how do I teach this? Guidance. If the bears yes. at the zoo can do it, yes. our dogs can do it. Um, but right now I've been working on like holding my hand out in sort of an upside down C shape so that she can push the top of her snout up into it. And then I can use my thumb and fingers to lift her lips and then I can brush her teeth. So we've been working up to that and I hold my hand out in sort of the upside down C and she shoves her nose up into it and I lift her lips and she's great. And now I've just started adding, touching her teeth either with my finger or with the toothbrush. And after two to three reps of that, where I'm touching her teeth, I've noticed when I hold out my hand upside down, she looks at me. She might lean towards mm. my hand. She's not shoving her nose in it. And that is such a clear opt out to me for her that gives me such good information about like there's some aspect of this she doesn't like. I need to build up more of a history. I need to make sure that I then don't reach for her because she would let me. Like if she doesn't shove her her snout into my hand and I reach for her, she would still sit there and let me lift up her lips, but which would be so reinforcing for me as the trainer. Right. And right. potentially more aversive for her. And so I do try to reinforce the opt out, but I have been thinking again about like if the only option for her to engage with me is that we're doing toothbrushing or we're doing nothing, we're also dealing with, does she want to be doing training right now? Like food is still available, but does she want to be doing training? But she's like, oh, that's the only 
That's the only right. way. It's sort of like hanging out with a friend where maybe you want to just like sit and talk, but your friend really wants to hug you. And you're like, mm-hmm. I want to hang out with you, but I don't want you to hug me the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like you want to talk to your friend, but your friend only wants to talk about dogs and that's all they can ever talk about. <laughs> I know anyone who might not want to talk about. I apologize today. to anyone where I may have been that friend, because um, I'm fairly certain this happened. Sometimes my wife is like, "I would love to hang out with you, but can we not talk about dogs for a little bit? Like anything else is fine." Um. Anyway, to go back to Beacon with toothbrushing, I think it was Allie's post that inspired me to be like, "How do I incorporate some choice into this?" And so at first, I was like, "Either we can do." I wanted to have two props. I wanted to train something where there were two like distinct things that she could see so that she Mm. could elect what we're working on. Um, But so I was like toothbrushing and the scratch board. And then I was like, those are so different. Like she loves her scratch board. It's a super different thing. Like that might have more stimulus control than the toothbrush. And so it may or may not be something. I know I just said she loves it. And so she probably would prefer it, but it also may or may not be something where we're looking at anything equivalent. And mm, that's where mm-hmm. I was like, what about the recorder? So for folks who maybe haven't seen Beacon on the internet, one of her, um, one of the videos I posted is her playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, just the first verse, which I believe it's incredible. is seven notes. Thank you. It's I do incredible. all the fingering on the recorder. You know, she's not quite that. <laughs> Beacon, Beacon hasn't quite figured out that dexterity yet, but she we'll does all the breath work. Consecutively, right? right? Like I was very impressed that she like blew into it like seven times. Um, I'm not going to ask her for more. We just don't need to play the whole song. There's no reason that's necessary yet. Um, Beacon's one woman band. We'll have to wait for a bit. But (laughs) Um, we're working on getting the other the cats in on the keyboard. Anyway, love it. It's a it's a small plastic thing that she puts in her mouth, much like a toothbrush. And so I grabbed both of them and held them up. And she would bonk one, and then we would do a rep with that. She would do whatever the rep was. I would take feed her, take them both away, put them back, and she would choose again. And I did really see her going back and forth and sometimes picking the same one. Mm, um, so now interesting. Now, one question that I have for myself and for Beacon is, like, are these both mildly aversive? Does she enjoy both of them? I like that they're topographically similar. That is that the behaviors right. look similar. They're both like, I mean, the the props are a little bit similar, right? They're long, skinny plastic things. But also for her, in both cases, she's sitting or standing or lying down. In most cases with this, she's sitting or lying down, but she can be in any physical body position. And then she's leaning forward and her mouth is involved. And so I liked that those right. were two similarities. Um And what I might do in the future is see if she wants to do her scratch board or her front or her pivots, like up on a, you know, something that involves her front paws or maybe her scratch board or balancing on her paw pods. Mm -hmm. Um, Because those are things where she is needing to balance a little, like even with the scratch board, one paw is up and she's on her other three. And with the paw pods, she's standing on something. They're both involving the front paws. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I've just started to explore a little bit more with her. Yeah, I love the I love the thought process too of, you know, how can I give two options that might be topographically similar, might look look similar in the sort of goal behavior, 
the the props are similar but still distinct enough that Beacon is able to differentiate. Um, and then also thinking about, you know, how can I, you know, provide different options too so that we're not solely relying on just, you know, this one set of, this one pair of behaviors that are going back and forth. Um, yes. I know it's something that I hadn't realized I was doing until fairly recently. It actually might've been around the same time that Allie put out that reel. So thanks, Allie. Um, <laughs> but I realized that I, there, the, if I'm doing, if I'm working on like a, a training session, a planned training session in my home, it's either in my home office or it's out in the living room. Often in the living room, both dogs are working on something at the same time. Often my wife and I will sort of like switch off on which dog is hanging out with who. Um, but I realized that in that specific environment, there are already multiple options for what my dogs can do. And it mm. wasn't intentionally planned that way, but now I try to incorporate it. So for example, there are multiple dog beds. And so if Molly, if I'm working with her, if she chooses halfway through, we're working on something different and she's like, oh, I'm going to go lay down on that dog bed. I'm like, great, cool. I'm going to reinforce the heck out of that. And sometimes she'll hang out there for a little bit and then decide that she wants to come back and do something else. Or she'll go over to my wife and want to get involved in whatever activity our other dog is doing and then we'll swap. Um, but it's been really interesting to see what things she chooses, what things our other dog chooses, because they're not often the same, <laughs> they're sort of mm -hmm. go-tos. Mm -hmm. um, it actually makes me think of, um, are you familiar at all with uh, Ace Free Work? Mm -hmm. So it's something I like have just started investigating more. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to give a, a super low-level <laughs> description of Free Work. Um, essentially, you create an environment that has a variety of non-slip surfaces for dogs to walk slash stand on. It has a variety of, um, I'm going to call them reinforcement stations, really just food is available in a variety of spots. So on the floor, different heights, different containers, um, different textures. And essentially, this is a very hands-off activity for the humans. The dogs are able to make a lot of their own decisions about how they would like to interact with this space. And we can gather a lot of data from that. So if a dog is choosing to eat off of surfaces of a certain height, that might indicate that that's the most comfortable physical height for them to be positioned while eating, right? Um, I noticed with Molly, if I'm using a snuffle mat as like a reinforcement station, she's more comfortable if I pop it up on a little bit of a higher surface. That's great data for me, right? Um, but I, I want to, I want to actively start incorporating more of that with my client work too, because I think a, it gives us some really important information, but B, I think it also is really nice for introducing people to, we can give our dogs choices and it doesn't have to be, you know, I think some people think of it as a, it's sort of like a free for all. Like if we're going to give our dogs choices, then that means our dogs get to make all of the choices all of the time. And we don't do anything about it. Um, which sort of going back to your example about beacon on walks, right? Like if my dog is trying to walk onto a highway, <laughs> obviously that is not a choice <laughs> that we are going to follow through on. <laughs> but there are, there are so many options for us to give our dogs safe choices in training setups, in life, um, you know, and so I guess this, this leads to sort of a, a question of if you are there, oh, wow, my brain just turned off for a second. Um, what are, <laughs> if you are sort of, and obviously this is going to depend on the, the dog and the situation, but if there are times where you're sort of talking about offering choice, do you have sort of go-tos for advice that you give people about how to incorporate that? 
Mm, oh, that's a good question. I'm going to sidestep that slightly, though, because go for it. I was just thinking about, and I've only done a tiny bit with ACE free work as well, but that model also aligns with some of what we call a, a free operant preference assessment. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I think a lot of people have probably heard about a paired choice preference assessment where you like hold out two treats, like you hold out the chicken in your right hand and the beef in your left hand, and you let the dog smell them both. And then they pick one and you record which one they picked. And then you switch hands and you sort of go back and forth. Um, I think Beacon really loves most things out of my left hand is, Ooh, you know, that's part of what side preference. Too. Yes, because yeah. a lot of dogs do have a side bias. Yes. And that side bias might might be about balance, but it could also be about a history of reinforcement. Like she often walked on my left side because I had two dogs and my other dog walked on my right side. And so she would often get treats from my left hand. Like that could explain that the side bias, just a history of reinforcement. Um, but there is a data collect. There's so many data collection methods that I learned about in grad school that I'm like, we all need to know about all of these. Um, <laughs> And one sort of category is interval recording or time sampling. Um, and so I was thinking about with something like ACE free work or a, sorry, to back up, a free operant preference assessment is where we just observe the learner engaging with their environment and we track, we collect data on what they're engaging with or how long they're engaging with something or how many times they engage with something. So we might look at... Um, you know, how how long someone plays a certain game on their phone or how many times they flip over to Facebook, right? Like those are some things <laughs> that we might- How long is Liz on Instagram every day? Right. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, and that might be different from how many times do you go on Instagram Very true. Yeah. every day because you might have really different information if you're going on it 30 times, which frankly for me seems pretty low. Um, but going on it 30 times for 20 seconds, which right. might be accurate versus going on it once, but for three hours, um, right. not to say that one of those is good or bad, but they might impact someone's experience in the world a little differently. Um, with interval recording, what we might do is take the time period and break it up into intervals and then record whether they interacted with that thing at all during that interval, um, which is in many ways, just easier than watching. Like maybe you can't watch the whole entire time, right. um, but you can watch you for that just period. Get to check off, you exactly. know, interact versus not interact. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I'm also thinking about how, like we have a, a pretty small backyard, but we do have a backyard and it's got different levels on it. And okay. the sun hits in different places over the course of the day. And it's really interesting to see Beacon rotate around. Like even in one half hour, she'll lie in the sun, in the grass. And then once she has been there for a little while, she'll get up and she'll come over and lie on the deck in the shade. And then she might go up to the second level and lie on her bed in the sun. Like all of this movement, I think, I think you touched on it, just offering different options, you know, yeah, different surfaces yeah. to lie on the space to move around yeah. um, and watching. You know, it's like the thinking I guess. about, I've had people say, you know, if I get like a, like an outdoor sort of kennel space for my dog to hang out in, yes, that can be appropriate in some cases, depending on time and size of dog and size of enclosure, et cetera, situation, all of those obviously like multiple components. But it's like, if you have a small kennel space that only is in the sun all day, 
or that only is in the shade all day, right? Like we've then perhaps unintentionally, but severely limited the options that Mm -hmm. our dogs have, right? Um, Even, you know, thinking about Beacon wanting to be in the sun for a little bit and then on the deck and then moving to a different level and just having the ability to to make those kind of choices. Mm -hmm. um, I love, like, I just, I love being able to, to see that in action. And it feels, it feels very normal to talk about like, yeah, well dogs move around and like choose different spots to lay, but it actually is really meaningful when we think about what that can tell us if we examine it a little bit more closely. Right. I love that you just said that because it has been a journey. I'll try to keep this story short. Beacon is three and a half years old. Um, and she is a large mixed breed dog. And some of her contributing breeds are like, have been described online as aloof, suspicious, and stoic. <laughs> like we saw that and we were like, yeah, like, she is a nice dog. I mean, I, lo- I love her with my whole entire heart. She is of one of the loves of my life. And she like wags her tail a couple times. Like she's not effusive. You know, she's she, when she meets someone, she like wags her tail and sniffs them. She looks very happy to see them. People are like, I love you. And then once she has sniffed them, she walks away and does something else. And she's yep. very happy with that. She leaves disappointed people in her wake everywhere <laughs> she goes. Um, I will say Buck does the same thing. He'll wiggle up to people and people want to like love on him. And then he's like, okay, bye. Yes, exactly. I, I'm done with this interaction. <laughs> I think my and mom. He's perfectly happy with the whole yes, sequence. Yes. My mom is not a dog person. And I think this has been a really good fit because Beacon is like thrilled to see her. And my mom will pet Beacon for like two to four seconds. And then Beacon's like, okay, bye. And just like goes and lies down, does something else. Um, But for the first couple of years that we had her, she was just like pacing around the house and not seeming uncomfortable, but seeming like she couldn't settle. One of the things she used to do is go upstairs and like flip the toilet lid up. (laughs) Like, and we would go up and be like, what, you know, I talked to another trainer because I was like, I cannot get out of my own way with, with my dog. He was so helpful. And this is just a plug for like, all trainers need trainers because oh, absolutely we yes. we are our dog's guardians and we know a lot but but we are not our dog's trainers we know a lot but we get in our own way sometimes yeah. yes yes um anyway she had trouble settling she would basically stay awake until she crashed and then she would fall asleep and because of stephanie pointed ace free workout to me i watched one of their free webinars online and learned about some of the signs of pain from mm-hmm. the webinar And at this point, my dog was two. Like, why would anyone think she's in pain? She's had no traumatic, like no physical trauma. She's healthy. Like nothing has ever happened. But this took me down a rabbit hole. And and now she's been diagnosed with hip dysplasia and arthritis. Wow. Yeah. Very mild. Like the, the vets I've seen have said this is like very mild. But they've also said some dogs with really severe hip dysplasia and arthritis show no sign. And some dogs like Beacon who have it pretty mild are very impacted by it. And it it just has has really impacted how I've been thinking about all of the things that I saw as like a challenging teenager. Like she couldn't settle. Frankly, she probably couldn't settle because she was uncomfortable. And so she would just go and go and go until she was too tired to keep going and then she would crash. And if I had like forced her to go in a crate. I mean, mm, maybe she would have mm-hmm. crashed sooner. 
who knows, maybe that could have been beneficial for her. It was not something that was on my list. And it's not something that I would recommend without doing a full workup. I wish I'd done a full workup sooner. Um, one of the deficits of trying to be your your dog's trainer is like, there's no one else being like, it's weird that your dog is pacing this much at this age, you know, right, right. Um, because she was not off the walls. She's not walking around panting. I didn't see stress signals. I just saw that she had a really hard time and it didn't even look like a hard time. It just looked like she was a dog who needed a lot of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And now, now she's on supplements and some pain meds and we've just started working with a holistic vet and I'm just seeing enormous improvement and like sh- we'll do a 20 minute walk and then she'll come home and nap And then later we'll do a 30 minute walk and she can still do an hour or a like two hour hike and feel good after that. But she doesn't need that in order to sleep a reasonable amount of time. Right. Um, Also great plug for, it doesn't matter if you have the most genius training plan on the planet. It doesn't matter if you are offering all of the choice in the best possible ways. None of that matters if there's an underlying medical. Yes. Right. Yes. And the number of dogs that I see where the, where there's something that makes me think that there's pain and then it's been confirmed, like, yes, this dog has a severe hip issue or yes, this dog has like this severe congenital um, condition, you know, is, is validating, but also really sad. And, you know, the other thing that has been fascinating with Beacon and with this process is like... I can't, I have been having a really hard time figuring out where to go to get answers. Like my general Mm. medicine vet is wonderful. I love them. But they're like, she's not whining. She's not like, she seems okay. Um, And the orthopedic surgeon that I went to was like, she's too healthy. Like she's not bad enough for us to do anything about it. Most people don't know. And I've just, it's taken over a year to find someone who I feel like is really able to collaborate and make a plan with me. Um, and the only reason I found them is because I I worked professionally with one of the staff who got me in because they were not accepting new clients. But the staff member was like, I really think you would have a great relationship with these people. And I think they would appreciate working with you. Let me see what I can do and made that happen. And so I I, I don't know. It's such a hard thing when we see an uncomfortable dog to totally. figure out where to send people and how mm-hmm. to support that process. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's like I've been thinking about this is, you know, I'm diving off topic a little bit, but I still think it's important. Um, so Molly tore one of her cruciate ligaments in January. Um, we have a very strong suspicion that she tore her other one uh, yesterday. Um, so she is not having a great year, poor little lady. Um, but it, in the last day or so, she has had about zero reactivity to sounds outside, which for her is abnormal. If there's a loud truck or if there's a dog barking, she, we've worked very hard on a thank you cue. She responds super well to it, but I would still expect there to be some response And so what some people might look at and go, oh, well, her behavior, her behavior has improved. She is better, right? Better. (laughs) Um, It's actually, I, I would suspect the result of pain. And so, Mm. you know, sometimes we see uh, behaviors that change in a way that we don't love. That is an indicator of pain. 
But sometimes we can also see the opposite, which could be a little bit tricky to tease out if there isn't sort of like an acute injury. But if there's a, any, we talk about like sudden behavior change. And I think a lot of times we're talking about behavior change that we as humans perceive as negative, but often, often that is the case, but sometimes it might not be. Sometimes it might be that your dog all of a sudden seems like they are, you know, behaving in a way that you find more desirable (laughs) overnight. And you're like, Oh, this is different. And yes, not what I would have expected. So can I tell a, a quick story? Yes, please. Um, I was just at this behavior conference last weekend, and I ended up chatting with someone at one of the vendor tables. And obviously, we ended up talking about dogs because um, my entire social skill is like, hi, I'm Rand. Do you like dogs? Like, I learned that when I was six, and it has carried me through into adulthood. <laughs> and like, literally, I have lots of friends because of this. So why change it? Why you know? change it? Um, anyway, she was like, you know, I'm having this issue with my three-year-old Yorkie where she has started screaming in the car and like freaking out whenever the turn signal comes on. Can you help me? And I was like, you know, I can't really give advice without doing an assessment and you're not a client, but like, you know, tell me more. So I just, I want to say explicitly, like I'm not out there giving free advice, but also I could direct this person to like what to look at next. And I was like, where are you driving to? Like Beacon certainly freaks out in the car at certain points in the neighborhood where she's like, we're going to the woods. It's these woods. I have to bark until we get there. Where I find dead things. Yes. It's like that last block. She'll start like vocalizing and pacing and it's all excitement. And of course, (laughs) when we get there and she gets to go to the woods, so it gets reinforced, you know. So I was trying to figure out like, might it be that? And she was like, nope, it's just when the turn signal comes on. It's anywhere in town. She's sort of freaking out. And it just started. And my first thought was like, I wonder if there's a pain thing involved. And then I was like, this is a three-year-old Yorkie. She didn't bring anything up. She didn't say like, my dog has been sick or they were just like, just came out of nowhere. And so she was describing it more to me. And finally I was like, you know, is it possible that there is a pain component to this? And she was like, oh no, no, she's recovered from her knee surgery that she had last month. And she's doing so Ah. well that we just decreased her pain meds. And I was like, no. Well, you know, I was like fighting with myself about like, it's almost certainly not pain because of these assumptions that I'm making. Like, it's not a big dog who like likely tore something. I mean, I don't know, that's outside my scope, but there weren't red flags for me in this like young, small breed dog who's in a seatbelt in the back seat. Um, But then it turned out that the dog had just had some sort of surgery and they had just reduced the pain meds. And so I was thinking about like, if the turn signal predicts that the car is about to turn and therefore the dog needs to shift its balance and that's uncomfortable, that could really explain it. I was like, you need to talk to your vet, roll out pain, and then here's my card if it's still not working and we can talk about behavior change. <laughs> right, right, um, right. But it was it was very humbling to me to notice the assumptions that I made first. Mm-hmm. That and well, I was like patting myself on the back for pain because then I was like, I bet this is pain, and I was right. But then also humbling to be like, I brushed that off based on so little information, and I would at this point put money on that being a result of the dog being in pain. Yeah, and I think that is an assumption that we make, especially if we have a young, generally healthy dog. If you know, and and major kudos to all of the pet guardians out there who have the 
ability and the access to get, you know, deeper dives into vet care for their dogs um, and who are able to go on that journey because it can be really incredibly helpful. But I think a lot of times if we see sort of a young dog that appears generally healthy, it, it can be really easy to write off the medical side. Um, it's something I'm working on getting better at having at the forefront of my mind during client consults is, you know, doing sort of a deep dive into their their medical history from the perspective of just me having that information. So that if I feel the need to say, Hey, can you go back to your vet? <laughs> yeah. You know, I am not here to diagnose you, but perhaps this is something you could bring up to your vet and see if they have concerns about. Right. Yeah. I have so many other thoughts, Liz, and we just, we do not have time for all of the things. I was just <laughs> Welcome to about- a six hour episode with <laughs> Fred and Liz. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, I am, I, I'm excited about the thought of putting out more sort of like little nuggets in people's brains about choice and about doing some really good observation and doing even some like at home data collection to kind of see what your dog is telling you. Um, I love all of that. So if uh, people wanted to connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Yes, there's sort of two ways. One is you can follow the Dog Behavior Institute on Instagram at the Dog Behavior Institute. <laughs> um, and that is where we post announcements about like our blog posts and book reviews and classes that are coming up and sometimes videos of our amazing clients. Um, and you can also follow me on Rand Talks Dogs where I am slightly less professional and a little bit snarkier and definitely post videos of my dog with her dead stuff, which is just like, can I just say there, the things that give Beacon joy, I think she enjoys training she enjoys running off leash through the woods or on a long line. She also enjoys long line adventures and she loves finding dead stuff in the woods and carrying it around. And thank goodness it, I mean, once she found an entire deer carcass, which over the course of several months, she gradually like carried the legs with us on our hikes. And so I'm sure some <laughs> other people found like a whole deer leg in the middle of a trail later on. And we're like, what is happening here? Um, Anyway, when she got hurt or when she was diagnosed with hip dysplasia and arthritis, they were like, you need to cut way back on her exercise and like she needs to be limited. And my approach has basically been no. Like Beacon doesn't like playing. She doesn't like being petted. She doesn't like a lot of other dogs. Like she doesn't hate these things, but she's just not that into them. They're not the she things that bring her joy. Running in the woods. And yeah. so that's what she's going to do. So people can follow Beacon. <laughs> her. <laughs> deer skull or her raccoon head or her whatever limb she finds once she ran and was just like barking at this tree and I was like this bark is a like help me bark like I need assistance mm. it's like I bet there's a dead thing in that tree but like why would there be a dead thing in the tree I was like ha 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 there's a dead thing in that tree yes there was there was a deer leg in the tree that I'm sure some other person had taken from their dog and was like I'll just toss this up here <laughs> Because don't worry, Beacon found it. Beacon found it. Um, anyway, those are the things that people can follow me on Instagram for at Randox Dogs. Love it. And uh, is there anything that you have going on that you would like to plug? Oh, that is currently? a great question. So, our we have a muzzle class, which, um, 
the registration just closed today, but it is amazing. And I'm sure we'll be doing it again. Um, we are just opening registration for a control unleashed online class. Um, I am not teaching that, but Stephanie is, and it's fantastic. Um, and then we do have online professional courses, which are open to anyone who wants to take them, but they are designed, dogs are not involved, um, though we do look at applications to people's dogs, but it is a live class um, in a relatively small group with discussion about different principles of behavior. So we will be holding Beyond the Quadrants, which talks about the principles of behavior that are more than just reinforcement and punishment, because in fact, there are five principles of behavior, um, and they're all relevant to what we do. Do. And we are also piloting one called, um, what is it called? Skinner's Verbal Behavior and Dogs or something like that. But looking at verbal behavior and dogs and touching a little bit on the buttons and how they work. I know a lot of people oh, are cool. like, do these really work? Um, and and the course is an answer to that. It's not a, it's not a quick answer. Um, but that's but an answer can be found within your yes. course. So. <laughs> so we're piloting that now. We pilot all of our courses first to see how they land either at a reduced cost or at no cost, depending on the course. Um, and so when we launch it, it has been tested out and we've gotten feedback and we're excited to bring it to real life. So that's something that we will have in the next couple of months. Amazing. Well, and I will say I was lucky enough to get to uh, participate in your muzzle class before it went live to everyone. Um, and it was delightful. It was a really nice combination of like general learning from each other and then also getting a nice personalized uh, set of feedback and has motivated me to continue working on that. So yes. that's my um, plug for your classes. <laughs> and can I say one more thing about yes. all of our classes? Um, for all of our classes, we have sliding scale spots. And this has been a really important part of putting our business together. Um, so we did just increase our prices. And along with that, we shifted our sliding scale to make sure that all of our services are available at the same prices that they were before our prices went up um, for Amazing. folks who might be interested in that. And I know that sometimes people are like, do I qualify or what do I have to prove? And the answer is you don't have to prove anything. You just say, I want a sliding scale spot. And we say, which one? We do have limited sliding scale spots, but we also have a wait list. So we'll, we'll put people on the wait list. And it is just so important to keep making sure that this is accessible. And we also work with people if they want to do a payment plan or if there's something else that they'd like to work out. Um, that is so beyond welcome from anyone. And we'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in any of these options. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that because I think that's such important information to put out. Um, and I will also say, really sounding like a, a fangirl in this moment, but on the Dog Behavior Institute website, there's a really great graphic that breaks down um, sort of what a sliding scale is and how you might be able to determine if that's something that you feel comfortable asking for. Um, so I will I will shout that out to people too um, if they have questions about sliding scale stuff. Great. And I do want to mention that that graphic is from Wurtz and, Cun and Cunning Apothecary. So that is something that is not ours, but that we took from someone who said, here's my graphic, use it and make the world a better place and give me credit. And we are so grateful for that model, which is definitely what we built um, all of our model off of. And it I, I do have to say, too, that we've had a number of people reach out and say, hey, can I use your sliding scale model? And I love that. I love that there are so many people who are looking at how do we make this accessible so that so that people can can get to us and so that yeah. there's no like 
judgmental component to it. All you have to do is say, here's what I want to do. And we can support that. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming and nerding out with me. Um, I imagine this is not the last time we will do this on the podcast since we had a a list of potential topics that I think we were equally excited about all of them. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your stories. And I always appreciate chatting with you because I always learn something new. Um, And thank you for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode. New Make It Click episodes are released once a month on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now, so make sure to hit subscribe to find out when new episodes drop. If you're enjoying our chat so far, I'd love it if you'd consider joining us on Patreon. Patreon members receive exclusive access to an additional full-length episode each month, Q&A and live office hours with me, and access to other fun and helpful community resources. You can learn more about supporting the podcast and joining the Make It Click Club community at patreon.com slash makeitclick. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at makeitclick.club for episode updates and training info. I also wanted to share that over at my main business, Rover Rehab, I have a new on-demand course all about reducing stress during vet visits through the use of practical skills. The link to that can be found in the show notes or by visiting roverrehabnj.com. For the month of June, a portion of all the proceeds from that course are being donated to Transgender Law Center, a trans-led organization that uses community-driven strategies to fight for trans and gender non-conforming people to live safe, authentic lives free from discrimination. Thanks for listening.